Welcome to the Stay the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is David Murren. Welcome back to the show. Morning, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed our chat last year. Yes, absolutely. It was July last year. So we were looking... Seems like seems like about a million things have happened since then. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The, the situational, situation normal in the new world. Indeed. So, Where to start? Where do you want to start, Paul? Well, predictions. Uh, you made some <clears throat> fairly strong ones that the market was going to crash. And we were talking about interest rates going up. Um, so where are we now? So last year, we, we saw the, the NASDAQ high. I think we even talked about it when I yeah. was saying predicting it before it happened, precisely at the point. And what's happened since? Well, as you know, last year it dropped 40%. I think that's just the warm up, if I'm really honest. Uh, I think that that's just a series of coils before the whole thing really gives way. Just the we NASDAQ or, or the broader market? Um, so I think you've got to split into two, into three sort of regions. In the US, you've got to think about the growth stocks like the FANG and the NASDAQ. I think they're really on course to accelerate lower. Um, and all we've seen so far is a set of coils, which means we've only seen half of the decline, at least, and, you know, if you're lucky. And is the key so, driver for that higher interest rates? Yes, it's higher interest rates, higher inflation. And so if you just go to the top of the, you know, the driver pool, um, I think this wave of inflation is far from over. I, I do laugh, chuckle at central banks' interpretation. The same group of people that didn't even see it coming now absolutely convinced it's all over and it'll mean revert back to situation normal. Because at this stage of the cycle, what you really see and should expect to see, as we did in the early 70s, is a resource constriction impulse. In that case, it was an oil shock. In this case, it'll be something like it, an energy oil shock. And I'm pretty convinced that's linked to Ukraine, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, so I'd expect that inflation is about to surge again. And where does that driver come from? Every signal that I can see suggests that the commodity um, phase that we're in started in March 2020, surged to the peak of last year, then corrected sideways as demand dropped away through the, you know, the, the whole demand drop in the, in the economies of the world. And now we're about to see the next surge higher, which is all about constriction and not demand. It's about the reorientation of a global world into a bifurcated world. If you're lucky, it stays peaceful. But in reality, I think that's very unlikely. And so it's a completely different construct. Um, and I think that drives equities lower. It drives bonds lower. You know, I noticed that this year started with the mean reverting bunch going as maximum long as they can, thinking it's all going to be okay. I think the reversal yesterday, very, very short term, might well be that jump off point for another test of the lows in the NASDAQ. And I think bonds are on their way lower and completing a correction in the US with the marginal new high and already started in Europe. So a really just overall pretty unpleasant sort of year ahead, I'd say, of wealth destruction, real wealth destruction on a on a very large scale. There's a chart that we're using um, with clients, and it's a chart of um, gold versus the S and P 500, and that 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 trend line, which has been in favour of the S and P for the last decade or so, um, there's three times that gold has tried to break out of that uh, trend, and it now feels like it's going to do it for good, do it for real this time. Because we tried in, I think again, as you said, in March 2020, with the first sort of response by the authorities to to COVID, namely money in you know, extreme money printing, even by the standards of re recent years. 
Um, and it now feels like the likes of gold and silver are breaking up. So would, would that tally with your, your assessment? Absolutely. I mean, you know, our work spans from the very long term to where you put your trades. And we were able to pick the low, identify the low at real time at 16.10 on gold, get everyone on board at 16.30 for this part of the cycle. And that surge from there has been pretty powerful, actually, pretty extended. And the key part to that process is dollar weakness. Um, because the initial phases of those those rallies always happen in dollar weakness. And I think we've seen a long-term high uh, last year that came about actually through repatriation. And I think there's an awful lot more damage to the capital structure of America than people give it credit. And the repatriation was a response in the high leverage sections of growth like the NASDAQ and you know the Innovation Fund ARC, inverted commas, a destruction derby itself. And essentially, you know, and the loss in bond markets, because all traditional portfolios would have lost more money than I think people are letting on. And as they ended last year, there was a sigh of relief and this sort of hope that it would be different this year. We've seen the first two weeks as people try to express that hope, but I think it's soon going to be quashed. And gold and silver are very, very close. I mean, silver on the cusp of breakout, only because gold's breakout is the last highs. But I think we're seeing an ongoing process. And while the dollar's weak, it'll, that launching ramp is accelerating. What was and it about 1610 that made the um, made the low so compelling for you? Um, we use or I use uh, and have done for 35 years, really derivatives of um, of wave counting, which allows you to go through many fractals until you can see the end of a pattern. And um, every fractal got to the end at 1610. And it was sort of the area, you know, I always thought we might get down to 15. Um, so I was prepared for maybe a little bit more of a flush out. But you've always got to be prepared in strong holdings. In fact, you don't get those final flushes and 1610 really started to stare in the face. Interesting enough, there wasn't a single person saying, I'm happy to be longer gold at that stage, which is another key signal, you know, negative sentiment at that price low. Yeah, I, I was quite bullish on gold. I think Tim was as well. But yes, um, yeah, it, it was a, a Fibonacci retracement from the yes. no, 2018 low as well. Um, but there, there were some signs. I mean, we had some people on talking about the dollar going down, and it wasn't something that I bought into. I, I was sorry, the dollar going up a lot, which, as you were saying, is an inverse of, of what was going to happen in the precious metals market. Um, and that that was the key turning point. Plus, um, we were seeing some support coming in with silver, which uh, has been underperforming, is now outperforming. But not all precious metals are moving at the same clip. We've got platinum that's uh, underperforming that hasn't really rallied and actually looks like it could potentially even go lower. So, well, uh, well, interesting enough, the, the reversal came first in platinum, which is quite interesting because you know it was reversing and basing before gold and silver. You talk about sort of, I think, you know, when you look at a market, let's look at gold. You need a peripheral, as you touched on, understanding of where the dollar is. You know, an extreme peak in the dollar produced negativity in gold. Well, if you can see that peak reversing tick, you can see platinum reversing and basing beforehand. And platinum sort of one of those bizarre processes that's a little different from gold and silver. Silver is less dollar linked, interestingly enough. It can express itself when the dollar moves either directions and still perform an outline trend move. And silver is just below a, you know, a classical trend break that every person with a pencil and a chart can see. And I think that's very, very significant. So I don't think it's underperformed because it's going to carry on. I just think there's a lead lag relationship 
Interestingly enough, if you go on the other signal, which you know, giving you a little bit more detail about thought process into where you see turning points, is I look at portfolio 25 gold and silver shares. And they're incredibly interesting because they have very different patterns than, or, but they are considerably different in their structure. And but when you, those structures start to tell you they're turning too, then actually you go back to supporting the primary underlying medium or commodity turning. And it was all coming together at those lows, in my opinion. So yeah, I, I think also t- I don't look at um, uh, precious metals miners, but I think you do, Tim, and you you probably would spot a change in those trends. Because shares tend to be far more sensitive. Would that yeah, be, I mean, the, the, that... the frustration for us has been that. So we we like to be. We think that there are so many challenges in this world. You can't be too diversified. So in addition to holding bullion, we also like to hold mining stocks. And we also like to hold sort of mid cap miners as well as the larger cap sort of brethren. And the frustration last year was firstly, I'm, I, I don't. To get to the heart of it, I think the FT reported about a week ago that central banks bought more gold in 2022 than they did in any year since 1967. So then you <laughs> wow. say, well, if that's the case, then why was the price so weak between you know April and basically September or whenever the the the, the market then reversed? It's as a skeptic, it's very easy to sort of see conspiracy in everything. But either way, it doesn't really matter because we have to play the hand we're dealt. You just have to take the price that is the price. But either way. I, I think I've probably I, I've been allocating to, to precious metals basically because of the monetary metal characteristics of gold and silver for 20 years. But it, through a combination of you know, objective valuations and albeit somewhat more subjective assessment of geopolitics, I've never been as positive as I am now. I think you have every right to be. I mean, one of the interesting things about that mining sector is I think it's re- it was deeply undervalued at the lows, disproportionately versus the underlying. So you've got, you know, a process of catch-up to get to that medium equated value. And because, you know, you are buying, in effect, resource in the ground. Exactly. Rather than if you go to many gold futures and ETFs, you've got to wonder how, you know, financially linked they are to reality. So I think there's a huge – I love the concept of that process of in the ground – and I think they have massive multiplicity. And I just keep thinking back to buying Lucol at 64 cents and selling it a few years later for $64. And I suspect that mining sector is exactly got those characteristics. When you, you could know. buy Lucoil. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was a, it, when we bought Lucoil, people couldn't spell it. But the day I sold it was I walked into trading floor and these guys in the developed market world were telling me how proud they were to have Lucoil in their pension funds. Literally, I went home and it was liquidated within a day. Yeah. So how do you value equities? Because you're saying they were undervalued. So what what are the metrics you use? Look, look, in terms of, you know, mining metrics, it's much more the pattern correlation between the underlying and, you know, gold and silver and the share classes themselves. So if you look at the correction give back depth in silver miners, for example, it's far deeper than the correction in silver itself. What do you mean so give, would, give, give back depth? I've not heard that expression. It's, you know, your, your Fibonacci retracements as a oh, percentage okay. of correction versus impulse. So, you know, in that respect, look at the silver miners. They have very deep retracements compared to silver itself. Good example. Right. Okay. So basically saying that, that silver outperformed as a metal as opposed to the stock overshot on the downside. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So out, and and that, that will overshoot on the upside without doubt in the corrective process so how so where does, where, sorry paul where, where does crypto fit in then given that the, oh. the the traditional precious metals are holding up pretty well but obviously crypto crypto so, world is in a bit of a bit so, of a state at the moment well well you know as you probably remember you know and again 
I'm not sort of sounding boastful, but it's more a reference point to being accurate. I managed to get the high at 66 and get short up there. And I ran the short right the way down to what is equivalent about 1880. And my view was we could get to 12 or 10. Uh, and, at the, uh, and I was working on the thesis that that would be probably coincident with a big flush in equities. But what's interesting is I had to, when I looked at the loss of momentum, I kept thinking, this is interesting because it's breaking away from that correlation. And then, of course, it twigged. Cryptos are a substitute for hegemonic dollar currencies or pairs. And so essentially, we've seen the reversal in the dollar. I think this is the beginning of a hegemonic decline in the dollar, to be honest, along with equities and bonds, all three classes going together, which we've never seen that correlation in recent history. So it'll catch everyone with their pants down. And I can, I think all the cryptos are now sold out. So basically, what comes next depends on where you count Bitcoin, for example, in its sequence. And under wave counting techniques, the whole thing we've seen is a wave four. And you don't see that in a non-logarithmic scale. But if you have a logarithmic scale, you can see it very clearly. Its proportions to the wave two make sense. So on that basis, the low you know, from 15 to 12 is an absolute low before you go 100K plus in one final surge. Yeah. Now, I'm not a believer in, um, in effect, blockchain surviving quantum computers. So this is not a long-term replacement. It's a short-term stopgap that facilitates speculation and safe haven behavior as the dollar declines. Just to, so just, think- just to explain a couple of those terms for people, um, in, in Elliott Wave, you have five waves to the upside. So you have wave one, which is an impulsive wave, wave two, which is a corrective wave, wave three, which is impulsive wave. So in the upward direction, and then wave four is a corrective wave. And then you get one final wave in the wave five, which is where the trend ends. So what David's saying is I've seen other Elioticians say a very similar thing that wave four it was completing around the sort of fifteen to eighteen hundred level, uh, fifteen thousand to eighteen thousand level, and then you would get a magnitude move to the upside equivalent to one of the big major moves that we saw before uh, over the past few years. So that would imply a break of, or at least a move up to the new high, and potentially a break of. I mean, you can get it so it matches the high, and it's still a wave five, which we won't get into the technicalities, but. The upshot is this wave five move is going to be massive and it may have started. And from my own analysis, when you when you have sentiment so very, very bearish at the end of a trend, well, when sentiment is very bearish, it's usually the end of a trend and everything that was going off with SBF, um, you may have noticed that, or those who were looking at the charts would have noticed that the market didn't go any lower, even though there was so much bad news coming out. Binance was supposedly, you know, there were problems everywhere and everyone was like going, that's it, crypto to zero, never going to touch it again. And then then we get this big surge in prices that we've seen over the past, you know, literally week that signals potentially the beginning of a new trend. So that's why it's quite an interesting point as to where we are now. So sorry, David, I just thought I'd explain that. Extremely well explained, you know, and for those people you know, who are not, haven't spent their life in the markets, there is a, a fascinating behavioral pattern where the herd is charging in one direction with negative sentiment. And if you're a, a, in a contrarian type mindset, 
as I think we all are on the call here, is you use that to recognize when it's run out of momentum. And that's exactly what happened down there. So, you know, and you can see it in a lot of other crypto you know, cryptocurrencies that they just literally couldn't make any more downside. And that's, you know, one of the indications coupled with completed wave counts in the correction that, that signal that it's turned. And when you think about it, it's not really an equity related product it's a currency related product as an alternative so it makes a lot of sense that now people are really thinking that wasn't just a correction in the dollar but something more substantial that the time of rejuvenation is upon us and the initial stages will be full of denial you know they won't be everyone suddenly flips bullish there'll be denial you know until you get to 40k and then yes. suddenly people think what, what's going on and at 66 they go oh my goodness and we'll start to buy it again and you're, so that's just classic collective psychology through the wave cycle you may have noticed also that Ethereum didn't make a low. So Bitcoin, no, it didn't. It, no, it didn't. It, it didn't um, so Bitcoin broke its 2022 low on the announcement, or, or before actually, and then hovered above it and didn't make a new low when everything, when the shoes dropped, as it were. But Ethereum stayed above. So it was like, wow, that's so strong. It was very What's very interesting is, you know, getting into the details of wave counting, you were talking about a fifth wave that completely lost momentum. And Ether, and Ether made its low a long time ago and has been actually coiling on the upside for quite a while. So it's sometimes, you, you know, you need the weakest to confirm reversal, but you can also pick up the strongest, which is ahead in the cycle. So I think it's, that, that's a really exciting space. And I think there is an argument to have some of it in the portfolio right now, along with precious metals and commodities, because that's the one sector I think that's going to prosper in the year ahead. To go back to the equity um, market just briefly, um, in terms of sort of the growth NASDAQ type stuff, do you foresee a... I think you've already alluded to it, basically there's 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 more pain ahead, a lot more pain ahead. But is that going to be drawn out, sudden sudden sharp shock, or do we in for like a, a like a multi-year sort of slow bear? Do you think? Look, I think we are without doubt in a three-year cycle that's bearish from the peak identified, you know, a year and a half ago in November 21. So far, in terms of wave counts, these are all one twos. So somewhere there's going to be a bloody great stretch, which we will call, you know, crash-like behavioral patterns. And then there'll be another mirrored set of stretches at the bottom, which could take us another year to get to that low, because normally time and price are matched. So I would say, you know, my target has always ultimately been right the way through the lows of the, the, the COVID crisis. And ultimately, this whole three-year cycle is going back to the lows of 08. And I stand by that. And the growth stocks are leading that cycle. Now, look at the value rotations in, say, for example, the 500 and the Dow Jones, and you don't see as, as aggressive downside. What you do see is the completion of what I would describe as a giant wave two before we start to match the wave three. So they're all aligned in terms of different patterns, but with you know projections for accelerated declines coming up in the months ahead. Interesting enough, in Europe, it's similar to the value process. This high we're at in euro stocks and, and European indices, I think, is a massive sell location as a secondary high from the one made in November 21. So, you know, it's all lining up to, you know, to build itself into a horrible mess as we sit on the cusp of this giant surge in commodity prices, which is a wave three. So, if any of you can understand this sort of nomenclature, in, in a contrative cycle, there are three big phases, A, B, and C. The A phase was roughly 2000 to 10, give or take, 8 to 11 in different commodities. The B counter trend phase lasted from 
uh, you know, 9 to 11, all the way to 2020. And 2020 onwards into the peak of 25, 26, we're talking about the sea wave. Mm. Now, that sea wave is a vicious impulsive dynamic and so far in that we've seen the surge into the peak last year the correction into where we have been up to about a month or so ago and what comes next is probably the biggest commodity surge through constriction if this model works that we've ever seen it will be horrendous you know like the oil shock on steroids um, Mm. rolling into conflict so it's interesting how behavior of markets actually indicates and the timing and i always call them the drumbeat of conflict uh, and I'll give lectures to the senior UK military and, and their foreign visitors. And I try to explain to them that war is not an accident. War is something that we do and we have done as a survival mechanism amongst the human race to remove weaker, weakening empire systems, which are our largest social orders, which are all anti-entropic. And when they become weak, we have a war to remove the weak and replace it with the strong. And the result is over thousands of years, it's always the strongest system which sits on top, which advances collectively human, you know, forefront of pushing back the universe's entropy. And that's our survival system. And the regulation of when those challenges are made are linked to the 56-year Kondratiev cycle. And every one of those peaks going back to, you know, 75 with Vietnam and the Cold War to the First World War to the American Civil War to the Napoleonic War, they are quite regular. And sadly, we are in the run-up to that. And conflicts break out not at the peak, but going into the peak. And so, you know, this escalation process that is not is much more than Russia and Putin and Ukraine is the thing which will draw China into its action point as well, whether it, whether it's it reluctant to be drawn or not. Human systems start fighting when prices of commodities increase and we start to think we can't get them. We're going to have to take them for someone else. So you're alluding effectively here to something happening in Taiwan, then, I guess. Absolutely. Well, I think uh, let's go back to the the other you know strand of the work that I do, which is geopolitical political modelling based on the five stages of empire construct that I've created, which continues to be alarmingly predictive. So where we are right now in Ukraine is I think that the Western powers, led by Britain, have decided to push Russia out of the occupied territories. Hence, you can see this this advance or this donation of armoured weapon systems which allow that advance well first of all it allows them to protect against an attack i don't believe the russians are able to really advance because they have lots of men and they don't have armed formations and they don't have the coordination so in fact they're pretty much a busted busted flush much like the germans were in 1918 after the spring offensive they were exhausted and had no offensive capability whatsoever so I don't think they're going to move in from Belarus because the Belarusians have 15,000 men and they're really not interested in joining a disastrous campaign. So I think that's more a feint. But what is happening is the Western leaders somewhere in the dark rooms have decided that inflation is the one thing that's going to stop them being re-elected. And their simple analogy is that inflation is linked to Ukraine, close Ukraine out and the world will go back to normal. So I think that's probably the driver as well as a moral issue of invasion and response by the West. So what we we are seeing is there will be a Ukrainian counteroffensive, and I think it'll be impossible for the Russians to stop once we break through the crust of defence and donations like challenges they have no answer to. So Putin's response is going to be cut the gas off, cut the oil off, maybe even talk to the Ukrainians, Iranians, and operate around Humos and create restriction. Whatever it is, it's going to shock us. And at the same time, the Chinese can't afford to see the Russians lose for two key reasons. One 
is they need their ICBM umbrella against America for stability because their, their nuclear deterrent is actually quite weak at the upper echelons. They need to ensure they can resource themselves overland in the case of conflict because essentially the US Navy could interdict their supply links and they can't stop them because they don't have an ASW capability to counter it. And at the same time, she is, in my opinion, in the last stages of that step towards conflict because of a number of reasons. He swapped the manufacturing export driven model that had built the Chinese economy in 2020 and moved to a more Nazi type four year plan, which is one of manufacturing and internal consumption. And that gap is why we've seen the Chinese economy fall away. You only have a number of years before the whole system implodes and then you're forced to act. And he's very close to that action point. I'm not sure how COVID behaviours fit in, but that's another conversation. Um, and essentially, when you roll it all into a ball, we are just sitting on the cusp of a very, very dangerous moment. And I don't think it's just about Taiwan. People miss this whole um, conflict period has been brought about by the advent on ownership of hypersonic weapons by the Chinese and by the Russians to a lesser extent, which means the Chinese can put at risk to and possibly, I think very probably, destroy all the naval forces of the US and Japan in a 20-minute preemptive strike across the Asian Basin. And I don't think we're looking at a Taiwan campaign. We're looking at a whole Asian Basin campaign, aka the Japanese in 1941. So it's much more serious and it's much more dangerous than the financial markets have any idea about, mainly because the Western world is still completely in cuckoo land about the threat it faces. Mm. On the commodity cycle um, aspect for, um, for this year, where do you see the potential high for gold and and silver <laughs> look we that's i think the best way to to kind of think about this is how much money we printed in the past 20 years and how much gold there essentially is in the world to olympic swimming pools is a, is a rough guess and how do you fit when the time comes when inflation takes off and when you know, central banks realize they've got to underpin their currencies with gold just basically the price of gold to match that financialization is a multiple. It's like five, even 10 times current prices. And I say that because this isn't happening at a, you know, as just a normal time where an empire is challenged against another system, but actually underpinned and stable like 75. This comes at right at the end under my cycle analysis of the American system and the capitalist system. So I think whatever happens is going to be more extreme than we can really imagine it to be once it starts to move into that domain. So my, you know, and, and I think that you know, the miners themselves have you know, tens of multiples of upside as a product of that. Yes. And the precious, the precious metal space and the commodity space is the one safe haven investors have in this, you know, terribly challenging time. But what you're talking about is a multi-year bull market and what a, given that it's sort of January and people like to make predictions for the year, I was wondering what you thought the where we are. I think you've got to be a GAN follower to think that you can precisely predict Price and time simultaneously. Well, on the day. I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that. No, no, I, no, I, no, I, no. I, I detected a bit again um, no, no, from what you said I, before, I, but price and time. But I, I was I, just wondering, do you, do you think we'll we'll take the high out of gold and silver? Oh, I mean, silver's high was fifty dollars. We haven't, you know, it's no. underperformed in, from a long term perspective. Do you think it'll take that out this year? Look, I, the high, the highs of you know 2010 are going through easily this year without doubt, within months the way it's trading right now. Um, the multiplicity of what that means 
is interesting. I would say if you force me with my my children at stake, you, you know, and I'm very careful about price targets because, you know, once things run, they always they either run further than you think or they don't move. But I could easily see, you know, a doubling, a doubling of gold by the end of the year and a doubling of silver. That's really modest. Right. But, you know, if you're pinning me down to the magnitudes we're talking about. We're talking about totally new domains of price behavior okay. that we're used to in recent history. I mean, because interestingly, I'm I'm seeing potentially um, that the dollar might start to rally a bit here because we're we're hitting some good support around 101 is very good support in the dollar index. So I think the dollar is going to rally. Having been bearish on the dollar when a lot of people were talking it up, um, I mean, I, I was bullish in that long-term phase, but you could just see it was everybody started talking about the dollar going up and it was just one of those contrary calls. Um, but now it seems like everybody's talking about the dollar going down because... You know, they're not, uh, the interest rate rises are becoming less. I have a lot of sympathy with that. And I tell you, you know, like when we got down to that sort of, you know, that that recent drop that we sort of were at 103, um, there's a quite a clear five-wave cycle off the highs. And so I thought we might, you know, pop up to 108. In the end, we got to like 105.80 and then it just puked again. I have a nasty feeling that that's the whole correction. And, you know, again, it overemphasized its move to the upside. So often these things will overemphasize to the downside. There is something about this. I, I agree. I have a lot of sympathy. And I find myself, my first calling point was the one you just described. And I actually thought gold, you know, $50 lower was going to retrace because you'd had a wave one and we'd get a wave two. But there is something about the price action in gold which suggests it's literally nothing like that. And the only times that happen is when the thing starts to accelerate and extend. So I am definitely into the accelerate and extend camp, which you can't apply to many situations, but it feels like this might well be applicable for both the dollar and gold. Mm, okay. and, uh, but I started where you were. So the migration of that, if you don't get the correction, if you end up with these little shallow corrections, as we did, then basically what happens if that's the whole thing and we're caught with our pants down as long-term dollar bears because the thing when it comes is so weak. And the risk with gold is you literally smart yourself out of what you think is a corrective surge, going to have a correction because we've been in corrections. It doesn't give one. It just disappears. And I think that's where I am at the moment. And as long as the price you know, doesn't give any give back, your risk is it suddenly moves even further than you imagined. Mm. A weaker dollar may support the the U.S. equity markets potentially, well, but we'd have to see. Um, well, that, that, that's the that's the other thing, right? So you know, having bearish of the equity markets, and especially after that that turn yesterday, which ended the surge at the beginning of the year. Normally, what you see in risk-off environments is the dollar rallies. So you know, and that's was my watch out for it. But I've always thought that when the really big damage came, you'd see bonds down, equities down, and the dollar down with it. And I wonder whether we've entered into that paradigm. Right. And and so with regard to the FTSE, um, that, uh, for all, <laughs> I, I, it makes me laugh when people start talking about Brexit and, and how much damage it's <laughs> done. And, and then you look at how much it's outperforming all the European stock well, well, indices. Yeah. 
It is the most, you know, it's so interesting. I must just raise this topic with you because it's so interesting. Here, you know, in Britain, we just saw, and I, I make a, a, lot, a lot of case in my marinations to help understand, apply my sort of social dynamics of geopolitics so people can see it. But what we saw with the eradication of trust politically was a linear coup inside the Conservative Party. And, you know, for anyone watching markets, the story that was told in the press and is now taken to be law that her policies were disastrous and we were having a crisis, we all know that's rubbish because it was all to do with the Fed creating differential interest rates and every single currency pair was going through the same process at the same time. But somehow or another, that sort of law continues that, you know, it was just an unfeasible process to go for growth. It's one of the maddest things I've seen. It's almost like sort of you're about to win a war and you put a, a put a white flag up just when the last shot needed to be fired because growth is about the freedom through Brexit. And then since that linear coup, which was frightening to watch, you know, I'd say elements of our society all coordinate together to remove you know, any kind of lateralism of Brexit and replace it with the good old back to love to be part of the EU linear thinking, despite the fact the EU is like falling apart in front of our eyes, is now instead of a third of the world's economy, it's one eighth, basically is fascinating. And this remain, Ramona return to we shouldn't have done it misses exactly all sorts of points. Why is the FTSE, the strongest stock market in Europe, not talking about it? How is it that Britain supported Ukraine at the outset and is now actually doing it again, you know, and you can't detract from Sunak and he's continued that sort of policy when no one else would? We are acting finally like a leader of the West with a sovereign construct. And no, we're poorly managed by this current government to our optimum and we haven't jumped on growth to create productivity to beat inflation, but we're still way ahead of everyone else in the way we're thinking and acting. So I think, you know, it's 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 that point is a really good one and it should be made more often. Although you and I know that you know, one of the core parts of that process is the FTSE is riven full of resource stocks and that happens to be a commodity story in itself. So it won't last forever. It's probably near its high right now before it goes down with everything else. But the resource waiting in it is one of the reasons why. One notes that uh, Japan is now sort of reaching its sort of Waterloo in terms of you know, the Bank of Japan policy over interest rates. Do you think we are close to seeing, or we may even indeed have seen, peak central banking in terms oh, of their, their attempts to try and keep a lid on completely irreconcilable problems in debt? <laughs> well, you know, it's and central banks are a product of the linear world that came about through money printing, lower productivity, you know, and the leverage to make it look like you had growth, and they were the forerunner of that mechanism. Their end came when they failed to see or foresee the surge in inflation, and it continues to be reinforced by the process that they think inflation is going to end and they're you know, going to go back and sit on their thrones. I think one of the things we're really missing is that you know if you look at the M&M policy, the monetary printing policy that people don't realise, we print money and we have done for 20 years, just like every other declining empire. And the way they did it and the Bank of England did it was they set up a separate organisation, like a little fund, and they put these you know gilts in there that they'd bought to cover the government debt. And then they funded it with short-term interest rates, which absolutely is as ludicrous as you can ever think of if an LM manager, the mismatch that comes with long-term debt and short-term interest rate funding and also lose your principal because as inflation increases, your bond price goes down. You've got to think that that, that little, that little organisation is sitting on a bomb of like trillion losses somewhere along the line. And I'm sure that one of the reasons they were reticent to raise rates was because 
they were completely compromised by their asset and liability program they've been running to support the government that would literally blow up under their feet. And I still think they're highly compromised by that dynamic. And when it comes to the fall you know, and this surge in inflation becomes uncontrollable, not only do they have high interest rates funding their debt, that they'd like the gilts on their book, that they'd like to really call you know, a, a, their buying price, which is what they do at the moment. Now, if there was an open market fund that did that, we'd all be in prison. But when they start to go and realize that now the gilts have come down by a considerable amount to match the interest rate rise, it's going to be absolutely the end of central banking as we see it. People may be unaware of just some of the uh, the, the losses that, that recently have been occurred. Um, it was quite shocking to see that the Swiss National Bank, which would is an organisation, an entity that people would assume has some kind of fiscal, um, you know, competence and and conservatism, lost. I think it was 140 billion dollars last year. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got to think the Bank of England is in for multiples of that. And the other one too that I really and, and sadly we come from the financial world. You know, when you hear, you know, conservatives say, Richie's really, really a prudent, capable money manager because he came out of Goldman Sachs. I almost fall off my chair because he was responsible for our national debt and he failed to raise long-term debt when he could. Instead, he funded the debt through short-term interest rates. And so the the country has the same LM mismatch, which is going to blow us up. And the increase in our interest rates this year alone is more than our defence budget. That is not prudent activity. That is absolutely linear thinking that fails to adapt to the way the world around it is. And in the world of finance, you lose your job overnight. And yet he is perceived to be prudent, capable and clever. Is there any is there any way out for these guys or is it just no? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm channeling my inner Mises now who said that there is <laughs> there is no end. There is no way of sort of reconciling the end of a credit bubble. The only question is whether it ends through the voluntary abandonment of further issuance of credit or whether it ends in a complete and total catastrophe of the currency. system. OK, OK. So I love I love I love your quote, you know, your observation. So I think let's look at. The reason why um, it ends in total disaster is because the linear constructs of leadership that got into the mess in the first place never adapts and just like doubles down on the concept until they're literally blown out of office. And the other option is that somewhere along the line, there is a lateral adaptation inside the organization or, you know, an exterior event forces them into that space. The emergence of a Mrs. Thatcher, perhaps. Yes, the emergence of someone who really is is a lateral thinker with linear disciplines for implementation. And that's, so if, you know, I'm going to cross over lots of conversations, but if you take this lateral linear construct, Thatcher was a lateral leader with a great vision, with a linear discipline to create the vision and manifest it. That's why she lasted for three terms and kickstarted Britain into a productive dynamic. Next came good old, you know, um, what's his say, so Major, and Major was much more linear. So oscillation number one. After Major came Blair, who's actually a lot like Thatcher. He had a big vision and he had the linear discipline to implement. And he made another sequence of changes, as in bringing Labour right into the centre. And the oscillation between left and right wasn't as extreme. Did some damaging things. We did some constructive things. And of course, what comes after that? The super linear Brown. Unelectable, so he's done it internally through party choice, not by the people. Didn't last very long. And then the next one that came along was Mr. Cameron. And Mr. Cameron was actually left-handed and lateral, but a very moderate version of it. Not really very capable, in my opinion. But who came next? Who came next was May, elected by the party, finally by the people. She was super linear and she didn't mess of it. 
So then the country faced it in faced entropic challenge. So it brings in a super lateral person called Boris with no linear discipline whatsoever and a few personality flaws. And he got us out of the mess, but then threw us into the next mess because he mm. couldn't actually you know, rationally work through the problems. And then the person that came after that was the attempt to get trust, which is a replacement. She was lateral in her policies, but just, you know, was ambushed in the kill box and never given a chance to work through it with, with some poor leadership skills. But in any other situation, she might just have done it. And then what do we have now? We have super linear Sunak. And and I don't believe it's going to be Starmer next because I think the entropic rate of change in the world is going to become so great that systems never let linear people govern in that phase. So whatever whoever comes next is going to be far more lateral than people realise. And, you know, it's obviously dependent on exterior forces, but they're in evidence around, you know, the wolves are gathering as we, as everyone else eats their blades of grass. We as sheepdog are warning them that the wolves are on the fence and all you can hear is the bang of just one more blade of grass, please, just one more because it's so tasty. Wow. Follow that, Paul. Uh, yeah. Uh, all I said was uh, the footsie was doing quite well, so that was quite a run. <laughs> um, um, so I, I was just thinking about globally and with the with inflation, with commodities going up, um, I know you're predicting that the markets are going to take a tumble, but will there be any bright spots? So do you think, for example, the commodity producers, exporters might do quite well Uh the, in currency terms. Absolutely. With the added dimension, and this is really important, is that I think you know the world is going to bifurcate. At best, it becomes a peaceful bifurcation, and we kind of get through you know the Chinese not joining in a nation war. At worst, it's a global conflict that is not like a 24-hour conflict. It's a five-year struggle to get back into the Asian base and having been ejected, where the industrial base of the Chinese-Russian alliance is facing against the world. And at the moment, they would win with their shipbuilding program to build a massive fleet to come out and dominate the world's sea lanes. No different from the Pacific War. So whatever it is we're facing is not what most people account for. Um, I, I am sad to say that my conclusion having, you know, been thumping the drum about the need to lateralize our our government and our systems and seeing it in the world is that it just hasn't been successful. The resistance and hold of the linear elements of thought are so great that they are going to run us into the brick wall. And then from that mess, as Chamberlain did into World War II, we're going to end up having to you know, rise and, and, and allow lateral people to come to the fore through entropic change to create adaptation to survive and hopefully th come through this. And I take Ukraine as an example. I think if you looked at their armed forces, they were probably quite heavily lateralized because of their engagement with Russia ever since 2014. But right now, the whole system will be adaptive and lateralized. The whole country is becoming a completely different entity and harnessing creativity to remove the invaders. And, and so that process, I'm afraid, doesn't really seem to be available to us with wide-scale, broad, linear leadership. And that leadership is actually across companies. It's across every form of leadership. So, you know, in owning a mining company, you've got to make sure that mining company is in a sphere of influence that the West will carry on controlling. And actually the sea lanes to that point can be protected such that the resource could then be moved back to the heartlands of the West. So you need to be thinking really differently about what works through this change. It is a, it, these changes have happened before. They're not unique. We just need to resort to the history books and then modify some of those patterns into what's happening around us. 
And, you know, at the moment, I'm afraid anything with linear leadership um, needs to be questioned very deeply for its survivability. So just uh, just to say that we are quite tight on time. So I, I think we're going to have to sacrifice media picks for um, predictions. Obviously, we're going to have, have you back on the show uh, sometime this year. Um, but given that we've got, just got a, a few minutes left, are there any strong standouts or, or anything that we haven't covered that, um, that you'd want to make some predictions or talk about? I mean, a question that I wanted to want to ask, but you don't have to answer this one given the time constraints, was about China. Do you think China will um, rise and try to continue to try and dominate the US? Or do you, do you think that the, the US has got something up its sleeve and they seem to be playing a technological war at the moment um, with obviously these big tech companies, they, they're trying to take back control. They realise that they've got too much of the big tech of, of, as you know reliant on China, and I think they're they're reversing that policy as we speak. Yep, they are, and bifurcation is taking place wherever possible. For anyone that's invested in China, I think you, you need your head looking at. You'd be lucky to get out with your fingernails. Uh, if at all. So I think China is not the growth story. And I wouldn't be deceived by, you know, she's sort of current removal of the wolf, the wolf diplomat for something more moderate at Davos. It just means he's buying time and he wants his surprise to be total when he makes his move. That's it was all sorry to cut in, David. It was also fascinating to see that the Chinese population started to decline. Look, that, that's one of their problems is demographically they've been they were constrained through the 70s all the way through, in effect, to recently by American power. So they couldn't physically challenge up until 10 years ago. That's the reason why they have to make their challenge. They either move for hegemony now or they never do it. And they know that. And that decline only accelerates the desire to manifest greatness and to do it now and take greater risks in the process. Time is not on their side. It is They can't wait. 10 decades or three decades, they'll be done. The Indians will be behind them. They'll have lost their national energy. The whole deck will have changed. Uh, America is waking up, but there is only one right now absolutely significant point people need to watch. It doesn't matter whether the West gets hypersonic weapons because the hypersonic weapons that, that China owns and Russia does to a lesser extent, but they don't work the same way, are designed to destroy carrier hegemony. They destroy carrier groups that project power and actually are the strong arm of American empire. The moment you destroy those, the power has changed. And whilst those weapons exist and the Americans haven't got a counter, the door to war is absolutely open. That's the one piece of technology all of you need to wake up. On my marinations, I've detailed this in extension. If you're interested, go to the site and you can read an appraisal of this process in a way you've never seen it elsewhere. It's the single most important determinant of peace or war in our time. Is that um, open to everyone or is that behind a paywall? It's a paywall, but, you know, buy a few newspapers in a month and it's cheaper than that. So it's hardly a big paywall for that. Um, you know, it's it's investment-grade information that, that I've released to the public on critical points so that the public can be much more aware, make better decisions both for their pension funds and their political choices. So if you buy a newspaper, it'll be more effective than a newspaper, and it'll certainly talk to you about the predictions across the whole spectrum. They make financial recommendations there. They're in the higher levels of the site. But, you know, everything to do with geopolitics is available there. And it's about prediction understanding, not past news. What about the growth um, of India? Um, do you, do look, India is on an upward curve. It's the, the, so the first empire of the Asian super system was Japan. 
and it had to go earlier and it failed and was knocked back into regionalization. It's the old system of Asia. It's on steroids and it's you know effectively surrounded by younger people. So it's still a powerhouse. And it's spending on defense and balance in the region, given time, would be extremely significant, but not enough right now. The Chinese are the second and the Indians are the third. Their demographic dynamic means they are really right behind the Chinese. If the Chinese weren't looking to take power globally from the Western world, but just work in their region, they would be fully occupied with containing the expansion of India because it's at that stage demographically and the transfer of technology from the West as an alliance partner to contain China will only boost India's aspirations. And as we've seen, democracy doesn't stop nationalization doesn't stop racial intolerance because Modi's party lead that charge as they try and polarize their Indian Hindu system to becoming the challenger for world you know, hegemony behind China. So uh, we've just got a minute left. So before you go, tell us where people can find you and uh, what your all your handles are. Just pop onto the website www.davidmurrin.co.uk, M-U-R-R-I-N, or Global Forecaster. You can find all the updates. We did podcasts on the available, like this lovely podcast with the guys, which is great. And I recommend all of you, investors not, to go and subscribe to Murray Nations to start the process. There's a whole higher level of uh, mechanisms through Arkan scenarios, which is like how we divide investment committees to where you should be, which sectors, what it looks like, news that's relevant, and a higher level beyond that. It's like accessing our hedge fund and all the ideas and constructs around it, when to trade, what sizes, how, records all the alpha generation for you to look at. And if you're interested in that, you can go to the market sector, press on quarterly appraisals, and you can see our performance in geopolitical predictions and market alpha generation. They're all available to you. And the reason why this is so open is because of my desire to help transmit the ideas and constructs which have been so predictive in explaining where we are, how we got here, and what we can do to make better outcomes and get through what is, I think, really a super challenging time for our societies. Now I know what it's like to travel at 5,000 miles an hour. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you say to me, "We've only got limited time." Yeah, <laughs> not complaining. It's just been fantastic. Yeah, um, Tim, have you got any final questions before you no, go? Just, just to say thanks, David, for your time as ever, and I look forward to having you back soon. I hope. Well, look, I, I'm happy to come anytime. I love chatting to you guys. You know, we're on the same page. Sounds like you're doing a brilliant job with your investment funds and, and the direction and your constructs. So all I can do is wish you luck. And I'm sure you're going to be very successful. Cheers, David. Thank you, David. All the very best and look forward to seeing you again. Take Super care. guys. Thank you. Many thanks. thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.